Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer and, more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, during each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And, I hope, after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. Giles Brandreth has been entertaining Brits for decades, and his broadcasting brilliance continues to charm multiple generations, be it on Just a Minute, The One Show, Celebrity Gogglebox, or his regular appearances on the likes of QI and Have I Got News For You. Giles is also an actor and Chancellor of the University of Chester. He served in government as Lord Commissioner of the Treasury. It is primarily his writer hat, though, that I want him to don today. Giles's many books include a series of novels about his fellow wit, Oscar Wilde, and a recent best-selling celebration of good punctuation, spelling and grammar, Have You Eaten Grandma? His latest offering is the anthology, Dancing by the Light of the Moon, which celebrates the magic of learning poetry by heart. Giles lives in West London and has selected Barnes Bookshop, run by Venetia Vivian as his home from home for today. When making the choice, Giles described Venetia to me as a model of everything a brilliant independent bookseller should be. So here's a really bad, unwitty little poem for you. Lest there be repetition or repetition. Or dread deviation. Oh, and by the way, we happen to be recording this on Valentine's Day. Let alone... Um, hesitation. Let's commence this very minute, the conversation. Giles, Venetia, thank you so much for seeing us here in beautiful Barnes Bookshop today. Giles, question number one, obviously, is why Barnes Bookshop? It was the first place you wanted to come to today. Because I love a bookshop anyway. A bookshop for me is one of the safe havens in an uncivilized world. If one is feeling low, you've got to walk down a high street or a side street or whatever and find a bookshop. And suddenly, as you go through the door, you feel less low. As you begin to browse the shelves, your spirits lift. As you come down into the basement of this bookshop, you think, oh, the world's a good place after all. Everything's all right. And that's been part and parcel of my life all my life. As a child, I was brought up in London, and Barnes is in southwest London, and it's south of the river. And, of course, until I was an adult, I'd never been south of the river. I didn't know, you know, I didn't think one dared go south of the river. <laughs> and I was brought up, really, in the West End. My parents lived in a block of flats, Victorian mansion flats, in Baker Street. Near us, there was a bookshop called Bumpus. Bumpus. Oh, Bumpus. Older listeners will remember Bumpus. But almost all your listeners, really, of whatever vintage, will remember Foyles. Mm -hmm. Foyles Bookshop still exists on the train crossroads. They now have other branches. Yes. But when I was a boy, going back a long way now, in the 1950s as a child, I discovered Foyles Bookshop. It was heaven on earth. 
because it was chaotic. It was completely chaotic. Did you go to Falls in the old days? I did, but I was more of a John Sando person, I'm afraid. Ah. We, are, we are dealing here. But that's good. We have got middlebrow. <laughs> I represent middlebrow, and we have highbrow. So let me tell you what the middlebrow child did. The middlebrow child went to Foyle's. Now, Foyle's bookshop was run then by a lady called Miss Foyle, Christina Foyle, oh, yes. who lived to a great age. And she ran this chaotic bookshop. I say chaotic, it truly was. Books were never properly unpacked, never properly put on the shelves. There were boxes everywhere, books trailing everywhere. And to get a book was quite a complicated process. You chose your book. You then put, took your book to one counter where you got a receipt for the book. You took that receipt to a till. You paid at the till. Your money was then sent in a tube. Oh, lovely. Around the shop. You got another receipt back. You took that receipt back to the person to get your book. But by then the person had often put your book back on the shelf and sold it to somebody else. It was complete chaos. And sadly it was discovered, one of the reasons it was chaos is that ultimately Miss Foyle did not have her, ultimately, which was being taken advantage of. In fact, I think some of the staff eventually were had up and they had their hands in the till and all became a little bit... Anyway, fortunately her nephew, Christopher Foyle, came on board and put the whole thing, pointed in the right direction. But I loved going there. And what was wonderful about it, it was on many floors, you could spend a whole day in the bookshop. And I realised my parents didn't really like me very much because I was sent out every day after breakfast. I was sent out. On Sundays, it was all right because I could go to church. And I would go to several churches. I would sing in two choirs. I was the server at St. Stephen's. Gloucester Road. Mm. When we come to dropping literary names, that was where I met T.S. Eliot. But we'll come on to that. Because okay. <laughs> uh, she's got better names to drop than me because of her John Sando years. Mm. But eventually, I discovered foils on a weekday. And I could go in there literally at 10 in the morning and be there at 5. So many departments, so much to discover. Coffee shops nearby. Mm. There's nothing more fun than going into a bookshop. And you meet lovely people, the other customers by definition, and the staff. Tell yes. us about your childhood in bookshops. Well, I was brought up in Chelsea. My parents built their own house just off Cheney Walk. And so I had John Sando near Sloane Square. What kind of bookshop was it? That was shambolic in the days of John Sando himself. Now it's much cleaner. But I remember going in there and I preferred it to W.H. Smith, which was in Sloane Square. And in those days, W.H. Smith were proper bookshops. Huh. And I suppose we also had a place in the country. And in Wantage, there was also a wonderful bookshop. And it was there that I really found a bookseller who understood me. And he would always put things on one side and say... I have this, it's just come in. And my father would raise his eyes to the heavens because it meant another book being brought into the house. And the, your fate was sealed. That was when you, you've you since become a great bookseller yourself. Well, but was that where it all started? It was, but actually I couldn't read by the age of nine because I had dyslexia. Oh. And nobody knew and it wasn't really very well known in those days. And so I memorised things at school and that's how I got away with not mm. being able to read until I was nine. To sort of hide it. I'm surprised you weren't sent right. to my mother. My mother was a pioneer teacher of people with dyslexia. Really? She worked with a man called Macdonald Critchley in the 1950s. And through mm. the 60s and 70s, she was one of the leading people in London helping children with dyslexia. Was she at the Helen Arkell Centre? She was indeed. I went yeah. to the Helen Arkell Centre. Oh, well, I'm surprised you weren't put under her charge. Well, I might Maybe have been. You, were. you would have remembered. People did remember my mother. My parents did, of course, like me. But when I was sent away to boarding school, 
I started a school bookshop. Oh, and, and the mistake I made, bless my heart, was because I could order all the books, you see, to sell in the school bookshop. As I ordered the books I wanted, and I couldn't understand why none of them were selling because I was just ordering the books I liked. And I quickly learned that you actually have got to choose books that the customers... How did you learn mm. about book selling? Well, I learned from, well, the greatest bookseller I've known, which was John Samer Smith at Haywood Hill. And he was very generous. In Mayfair, in, in yes, London, yeah. and he was very generous with his knowledge. And what did he teach you? I mean, how specifically does a, how do you stock a bookshop? How do you choose what to have? Well, he would say you start with the things that you enjoy because those are the things you can recommend. But then you learn from other people. You learn from the customers. You learn from the authors that come in. And I learned a tremendous amount from him. So which books in your youth or childhood it foils? Which, which sort of formative s- books? Yeah, which are the key formative, ones? Well, formative books I do remember, 1960, when I was at my prep school, <laughs> ordering the copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover. Oh, wow. Lady Chatterley's Lover was originally published in the 1920s by D.H. Lawrence. And it was a banned book. Yeah. Couldn't be published in this country. And it was prosecuted. Penguin decided they were going to publish Lady Chatter's Lover in 1960, and a prosecution was taken out because it was deemed to be obscene. And there was a great famous court case, and it was found not guilty. So Penguin published it. I was about 11 at the time, (laughs) but I read about this. I was an enthusiastic book collector. I loved books. Books have been my life. I'm much happier with books mm. than with people, to be honest. I'm coping with you. Um, <laughs> but, and Venetia I'm happy with because she basically smells of books in a good way. So I wrote off, because I thought I can't, don't dare go into the shop because I'm not going to sell it to an 11-year-old. I wrote off to Penguin and I got a copy sent to my prep school. But unfortunately, it was in a brown envelope, but it had a Penguin label on it. Mm-hmm. So clearly the teachers saw and they guessed. Rumbled. Uh, but well done them. The teacher read it first and then let me have my own copy, said, you may read it. So that's the book I remember buying. But I love physically having books. I've got tens of thousands of books at home. My wife says you must get rid of them all, or most of them, because she's told me that I keep everything. I've got a thousand jumpers, a thousand teddy bears, tens of thousands of books all at home. And she says, you know, when you die... Before I call the undertaker, I'll be calling the people <laughs> who supply the skips. And I've got... Um, and it's all, it's all going. It's all going, Giles, because I've acquired books, most of which I've never read. I don't think you need to read a book. Possession. Oh, it's a good book. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I have read that. But owning a book is part of yeah, it, isn't books it? Books do appealing. furnish a room. Books do furnish a room. Interestingly, my preference for schoolboy books was Frank Richards. Do you know what I mean by Frank Richards? No. Now, Frank Richards was the most prolific English author of the 20th century, and nobody's heard of him. Frank Richards, in excess of 80 million words. His real name was Charles Hamilton. He lived, he died, I saw him once in a distance, in about 1960, just before he died, in Broadstairs. I couldn't believe it, my hero. He created one of the great characters of the 20th century at about 1904, He inspired Harry Potter. His books, in fact, are very like the world of Harry Potter. 
Frankfurt was created, Billy Bunter. Oh. Ah. And Greyfriars School. The Fat Owl of the Remove, Mr. Quelch, all those boys, those schoolboy yarns. He also created a series about a girl who was tubby called Bessie Bunter. He wrote two comics, Magnum and Gem. They call them comics. They weren't strip cartoon comics. Mm. They were like stories for boys and girls. And he wrote those in the first decade of the 20th century in the teens and the 20s and 30s. He had a bit of a gambling addiction, lost all his money, made a lot of money on the tables in the south of France, and then wrote novels about Billy Bunter. And I'm one of the presidents of the Billy Bunter Society. But I'm also involved, I think, in the Enid Blyton Society, the Rupert Bear Society. Uh, I'm into all that. I've, I've never really left my childhood. And I think that probably is why I like being in a bookshop. And mm. this used to be the children's... We're downstairs at your bookshop. We are. We are. This used and to be the children's department. Well, we do it's have still, a whole wall of children's still. books. Oh. But it was because the perambulators got bigger and bigger. Oh. And parents didn't want to leave their babies upstairs. Where's the new shop going to be? Uh, still in Barnes? Oh, yes. It's going to be just down the road near the Wetland Centre. So number 98. So this shop's been here for 30 plus years? Yes, it has. Yes. Yeah. You're the latest custodian. I am the latest custodian. Did you, just to finish on one's childhood reading, I discovered when I was quite young at prep school, Agatha Christie. Yes. And I adored Agatha Christie. The more sophisticated teachers said you should try Nio Marsh because you're a bright boy. And they felt Agatha Christie was a bit beneath Nio Marsh, I think she's a New Zealand writer. Yes, she is. And she wrote Murder Mysteries in the Agatha Christie vein. Mm. I loved Agatha Christie. It's rather like people are snobbish about Enid Blyton as well. Mm. But some of Enid Blyton, particularly The Faraway Tree, Mm. do you remember that one? Oh, we stock it. Are magical stories. And I was lucky enough to become friendly with Enid Blyton's daughters, Mm. who had a very different view about Enid Blyton. One adored her mother thought she was the best thing who ever lived. The other had reservations about her mother, felt she'd rather blighted her childhood and wasn't necessarily a good influence on either her or the world. <laughs> so there are two views about Enid Blyton, but I'm, I'm on the side of Enid Blyton and Agatha Christie. Yes. I, I'm on the side of people who popularise things. Yes. I think it's good to get children into reading and I think it's good to read everything and anything. Oh, absolutely. And I would almost go so far as to say that you have to beware of school reading lists because very often they're not updated. And it's meant to be entertainment reading. It's not meant to improve a childish mind. It's meant to be fun. Mm. And with so many, you know, competitive things in this world, you know, screens and such like, it has to be fun above all. Are you happy not to finish the book when you've started one? Speaking of it being fun. I'm a reluctant non-finisher of books. I'd rather get to the end and then say, that was rubbish. Yes, I do that. I think it may may be a generational thing. No, Mm. I'm the same. I I mean, I feel once you've made a commitment, you keep going with it. But I'm unfortunately a very slow reader. So am I. Uh, It's two minutes a page, whether it's Tolstoy or Tom and Jerry for me. (laughs) I'm just very, very slow. I'm currently reading, amazingly, the diaries of Harold Macmillan, mm-hmm. who was the Prime Minister in the late 50s and early 1960s. In fact, at the time, Lady Chatterley was published. Maybe I just can't escape my childhood. <laughs> and I'm reading this book. I, I've got it for research purposes in a second-hand copy because I was writing about Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And I heard there was some quite interesting stuff about cabinet discussions about what Prince Philip, what his title should be in the 1950s when the Queen became Queen, what were they going to call him? Were they going to call him Prince Consort, Prince of the Commonwealth? Anyway, I got this book. And Harold Macmillan was a voracious reader. 
from the Macmillan publishing family. Yes. He would, even when he was prime minister, be reading 50 books a year. But he is now minister for housing, and he's reading about 150 books a year, two or three books a week. And we're talking about big books. Comfort reading for him was Antony Trollope. He would oh, go yes. back to the Barchester mm. Chronicles every time there was a crisis. Winston Churchill playing up, he turns to Dr. Thorne. But he's also reading people like Macaulay, great Victorian history books. Extraordinary. And it's clear for him, affairs of state weighing him down, he goes into his study or library, gets out one of these books, and it solves the problem. Do you find it reassuring for a leader to be a great reader? Yeah. In the yes. Obama vein. Oh, was Obama. Obama's a great reader, great writer. Exactly. Nicholas, Nicholas Sturgeon is a great reader. She and reads, and David Cameron, too. He reads a lot. And the present Prime Minister, I believe, has read yeah. quite a lot. Yes. In his time. There's you know. something reassuring about that. Well, I think there is. It shows they've got another, what people used to call a hinterland. Yes, a world elsewhere. Which is good. I was lucky enough when I was an MP to know Dennis Healy, who mm. was the Labour Chancellor of the Exchequer and Defence Secretary, blessed with a marvellous wife and a great constitution. But he had a great hinterland. Mm. He was a photographer. He read voraciously. I mean, books furnish a mind as well as, you want to feel that people have lived a little bit. Yeah, and have some horizons. Yeah. Outside of Westminster. So I'm glad you're a slow reader too. I am. What do you read now, Venetia? I've just finished In Proof, so it's coming out in April, the new Anne Tyler. In Proof, In Proof. These are the perks of being <laughs> It is a perk. It and, is. And? I enjoyed it very much. Um, nobody writes about middle America, yes. the invisible people, better than she does. And I have to say that whatever time I get to bed, I always read. Yeah. Whether it's two o'clock in the morning, I will always read for maybe 10 minutes, half an hour. I can't go to sleep without no, reading. I can't. Even if it's for 30 seconds, even if, as it were, my wife has already gone to sleep, the lights are out, yeah. I have to, almost with a torch, but I remember as a child, <laughs> loving going round, I have one of those torches that had three colours. You oh. could do red, <laughs> green, as well as the yellow. And I remember, <laughs> and I do, find this it will amuse you, I do remember reading The Hound of the Baskervilles at my prep school, red blankets, I remember, white sheets, three duvet, and going down there with this torch, and I made it green to make it more spooky. <laughs> <laughs> so I read it in oh, green. Conan Doyle is wonderful. Isn't he? Isn't he? Absolutely. Conan Doyle changed my life, we, but we'll come on to that. I discovered the autobiography of Arthur Conan Doyle in the library of the House of Commons, and I read that book, and it changed my life. But before we get to that, one of the things I keep on my bedside are diaries. I write a diary. So You've I, published diaries? I've published two volumes of diaries, and there's talk of a third. But anyway, I read other people's diaries. And the reason they're perfect bedside reading, because... Often the entry is quite short. Yeah. I love Virginia Woolf's diaries. I love political diaries. I love mm. Chips Channon. I love Harold Nicholson. I quite like Alan Clark. Current diarists? Oh. Of today? The world since 1959 has been a closed book to me. <laughs> <laughs> Who are the current diarists? The diaries stopped after 1959. Everything stopped after <laughs> 1959. To be honest, if I can't be in my childhood, I want to be in the 1890s. But I love coming into a bookshop like this because it's timeless and it's yes. like going into a time-free zone. You can be here as modern as tomorrow. Venetia's got all the latest bestsellers. She's got books that merely are collections of emojis, hardly any words in them at all. She does all that. She needs to make her money. Fair enough. But it's as modern as tomorrow with a lot of time for yesterday. And that's what I love about a bookshop. You can get it all. Your new anthology is in the window upstairs and on the counter. 
in the window on the counter. Yes, as it should be. There's as a reason we invited the podcast to be here. <laughs> Thank you for putting it in the window. But in fairness, Venetia really does support local authors. Does it make a difference having a book in the window? Yes, really, yes, I would say so. But you need to change the window, because often my yeah. wife and I, for a walk of an evening, we say we'll walk as far as the bookshop and back, and we come to look in the window. Well, you were changing the window, you guys, as yes, I arrived. Yes, we were, but we were putting fake grass in it. HarperCollins have given us fake... Not enough for fake news. We've now got fake grass. <laughs> no, we have fake grass and fake spring flowers, because it's the anniversary of Judith Kerr's birth, or rather ah. the tiger who came to tea. Ah, so lovely. we have Another local a morgue. Author. We have a Judith Carr window and a little bit of Roger McGough, who's... Roger McGough, local author. Exactly. Speaking of Mog, Meg Mog and Owl, Jan Pinkowski, local oh, artist. Oh, lovely. We got them all. Yeah. We got them all. Come to Barnes, Church Street, the... When are you moving? When's the moving happening? In a month's time. On, on your church, birthday. Yeah, you're still on Church Street. And will on be your a, wife's birthday. We share a birthday. As four, I discovered in your... The 14th of... 14th of March. 14th of March. Also the birthday of Albert Einstein. Yes, yes. And Michael Caine. Not a lot of people know that. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of poets, who is the best-selling English poet today? Without a doubt, a lady poet, a new anthology out I last know, Christmas. I know, I know the answer to this. What is the answer? Pam Ayres. Pam Ayres. It's also, also her 14th birthday. Of March, yes. Tom Stoppard, new play just opened, great writer, gave me a poem. I told him my wife was born on the 14th of March. He said, I'll give you a poem for your wife. It's actually Albert Einstein's birthday too. I've written a poem called The 14th of March. This is the poem, which I will repeat with permission. No royalties required, given to me by Tom Stoppard. I can recite it to you. 14th of March. Einstein born, quite unprepared, for E to equal MC squared. (laughs) (laughs) There you are. Wonderful. And it's Pi Pi Day. Did your wife know that? Our birthday, because every day has to be a celebration day of some sort. So it's because of the American... Ordering of month, day, year. But 0314 means that our birthday is also Pi Day. Well, I'm pleased to hear that. Isn't it also the Mad Hatter's birthday? I believe so. The day of the tea party. That's what you told me. I think so. I looked up, because your new anthology is also about memory, I looked up the record for the number of digits remembered of Pi, because obviously it goes on and on and on. Oh, yeah, and there's a poem to help you remember it, isn't it? Can you guess how many, roughly? Tell us. 70,000. Wow. And was there somebody who could remember them all? Yeah. Good grief. This book that I've done, the Venetia Very Sweet, which is very, it's very beautiful sold book. lots of copies of, it's called Dancing by the Light of the Moon, which is a, a reference, of course, to the lovely poem by Edward Lear. Yes. Out on the Pussycat. And it came about, it's a spin-off, really, of a radio program I did about memory, because I was banging on about how poetry is good for you. And a friend of mine was a radio producer. Yeah, we know it's good for you, Giles. You know, you're banging on about how you were at school with Robert Graves' son and all the rest of it. And you shook hands with T.S. Eliot when you were nine. And we know all that. But is it good for everybody? I said, oh, yes, I believe it is. He said, well, you prove it. So I went out on a mission to prove it. And we went to see some neuroscientists at Cambridge University and learned from them that if you speak poetry to newborn babies, unborn babies in the womb, and after the, in the last sort of three months before they're born, and when they're little, speak poetry to them, rhythmical poetry, it will improve their facility with the language, including children with dyslexia. It will make them speak more easily and more quickly, sooner. Later, it will help them with their reading and their writing. Mm. Lots of research on this. It's the rhythm mm. in the poetry. Judy Dench took part in this program, 
And she told me that the first thing she learned as a little girl was Shakespeare. And I said, oh, come on, we know you're Judy Dench, but come on. <laughs> and the neuroscientist said to me, no, it's quite possible because, of course, the iambic pentameter mm. is the rhythm of your heart. It's mm. not called learning by heart for nothing. She may not have understood it when she was a little baby, but you could easily learn it. Mm. And at the other end of the spectrum, I also learned that with older people, you can actually help delay the onset of dementia by learning poetry by heart, keeping the synapses supple. You know, the brain is a muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it. So all else being equal, you can help keep dementia at bay by working that muscle that is your learning poetry. And so I started a scheme called Poetry Together. And if you're listening to this and interested, please go to poetrytogether.com. And if you know a school or an old folks' home might like to take part, basically we get children from schools and old people from old folks' homes to learn the same poem. And then during National Poetry Day, that time of the year in October, the schools and the old folk get together, have tea, cake, and perform their poem together. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So I put together an anthology of poems that you can learn by heart. Fun ones, silly ones, old ones, the classics, mm. all the favourites. What what's the poem you remember first learning when you were a little girl? Oh, Sea Fever by John oh, Macefield, yeah. which is wonderful. And again, it's the rhythm. Is that the one? I'm, we must go down to the beach. Yeah. This is you again. I must down to the seas yeah. again, to the lonely sea and sky. And all I ask is a tall ship and a star to no. steer her by. Mm. And it's just wonderful. It's really beautiful. beautiful. We're welling up already, that. yes. Yeah. You led me to find a video that I had somewhere in the bowels of my computer of my son, aged, I think, three performing from memory because he couldn't read obviously the owl and the pussycat and we'd read it enough to him that it had gone in mm. and i found this video it's incredibly cute <laughs> where he's sort of in sort of pigeon early uh, words oh, reciting the owl and the pussycat and also it was around two years later that we i was very struck i went to a funeral a family funeral sadly and the sons performed in honor of their mother who'd passed away the owl and the pussycat because it was what they'd always oh. been read as a child, by her. And then, the same month, the same family, my in-laws, we went to, it was actually my sister-in-law was getting married, and she asked that my kids, partly because of said video, would perform the Alan and the Pussycat Aww. with us. And they were then aged five, so they were able to do it. So we stood up and we all did it as a family. But isn't it interesting that the same poem yes. in the same month could hit the same notes in such different circumstances, mm -hmm. and not a dry eye in the house, both occasions. And it was the first one you learned, I believe. It is. Job. And it's a good one for people to learn again. People, older people think, oh, I can't learn poetry. To relearn a poem from your childhood is mm. a good place to start because it's actually in there. It's in the memory muscle somewhere so you can revive it. People often think it's impossible to learn a poem after a certain age. It is if you try to learn the whole poem. If you take two lines a day, anybody can do it. I'll give you an example. Now, I'm going to teach Venetia a poem. There once was a man from Peru. I'll make it easy. Um, <laughs> there, to see if you can repeat this after me. There once was a man from Peru. There was once a man from Peru. Whose limerick stopped at line two. Whose limerick stopped at line two. That's the end of the poem. Oh. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is, you'll remember that now because it's yes. short and it's sweet. But all you need to do, at the end of the day, you've learned it instantly. There once was a man from Peru whose limerick stopped at line two. You can learn two lines instantly. Don't try and learn more than mm. two lines. Tomorrow learn the next two lines, and gradually, within a week, at two lines a day, you can learn a sonnet. Yes, and then you'll have it forever. And then you will have it forever. How satisfying is that? I wanted to learn one in advance of today, and I love the poem Ithaca. My wife's half Greek, but I didn't get too far. 
I got to about as you set out for Ithaca. And that was about it. Wow, that's a good start. <laughs> it, it has a resonance. No, I did get it. a little bit further than that, but it sort of sums up the poem beautifully, the Kavafi poem. Yeah, and we do know. But yes, yeah, so you, I'm you must working w- on it. I'm working on it. I can do the first have the Have the anthology by your bedside. Yeah. That's also, I mean, I like things in the evening to read that are short and easy. So a poem to read before you go to bed yes. or a diary is quite good. Sometimes when I'm in a real hurry, I just read from a book of quotations because they're very short, the entries there, but they're a bit Moorish. It's like eating a box of chocolates. You know, with a book of quotations, you read one, but, then you read another. But there is another thing you can learn by heart, and that's hymns. Oh, I yes. love hymns. Yeah. They're really good. And actually, lyrics somehow often get implanted because yes. of the music. Yeah. I feel like I have a better facility for lyrics than perhaps poetry. Uh, in in um, Dancing with the Light of the Moon, I've got quite a few song lyrics, because mm. sometimes they do stand up. Cole Porter reads as well as he sounds, mm. actually. But you're right, dear Lord and Father of mankind. mankind. Oh, I mean, it's wonderful. Oh, Oh, what is but it? I love that, the imagery. Yeah. What is your favourite hymn? Hills of the North Rejoice. Oh, I don't. Do I know that? It's an Advent hymn, and it's got lots of very un-PC things in it, which is why it's not often sung in its original form. But it is marvellous. I do recommend it. Yeah. It's like the national anthem. Some of the verses of that yes. are so, so un-PC. <laughs> it's only the Duke of Edinburgh who still sings them. <laughs> But, Charles, do you not have a sort of elephantine memory anyway? I sort of imagine you as someone who's got a great memory for jokes and for these, you know, quotations, etc. Is it something that you find relatively easy I mean, compared it, it, to other people? It's the, no, it's the, if you don't, it's, just the it's, it's using it. Yeah. It's, it's, you work it's basically, no, it's just using it all the time. Mm. And I do a lot of after dinner speaking and I host a lot of award ceremonies. So I try, as it were, to listen to what I'm being told. And to, I mean, I suppose I do a little bit that American thing of repeating Yes. What I've just been told and Names. It's always it a good to, trick, isn't it, to, if you meet someone to repeat uh, to the name. To repeat the name. And, yeah. yeah. It can be challenging. I was told a joke recently that made me smile. So I'll share it with you. It's about remembering things. A fellow is at home with his friends. His wife's in the kitchen preparing supper, and they're having supper. And he's talking about the restaurant that they'd been to the previous night. Do you know this joke? No, I don't. And the fellow is saying, it's the most fantastic new <laughs> restaurant. And it's in Barnes, and it's a fantastic, it's quite near your, where your bookshop is. It's a new restaurant, and the food is completely superb. We had a brilliant starter. Prawns, sounds old-fashioned, but it was just wonderful. And then the main course, I'm a vegetarian normally, but I just ran right on the fish. And then there was this incredible souffle of the pudding. They were fantastic, you must go. And his friend said, well, we'd love to go. What's it called? What's it called? He said, oh, God, what is it called? Oh, God, for God's sake, what is it called? What is it? Oh, I know, I know. Um, think of a, a, a flower with a long stem and a, a sort of red Petals at the top, smells lovely. Thorns at the side, um, a stalk with thorns. Rose, <laughs> oh yeah, Rose, Rose. What was the restaurant called? <laughs> <laughs> so the point about my book is, it solves your memory problems yes. and also gives delight. And has I, the, a lovely, lovely range of poems yeah, as well. Yeah. I've been writing a series of murder mysteries featuring Oscar Wilde as my detective, and Venetia is very sweetly stocked all of these. And the joy, and I know readers like this, if they find something they like, they want more of it, don't they? Which is why, for some authors, this is exhausting, because they've got to keep churning out the same, really, they want people on the same book again and again. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think that's And it disappoints them. They, they, you know, they want another Hercule Poirot mystery. And if it's an Agatha Christie without Hercule Poirot, they're disappointed. They really want the same thing again and again. So I've created a series of murder mysteries featuring Oscar Wilde as my detective. And it was born in a library 
because when I was a member of parliament in the 1990s, my favorite room at the House of Commons, I took refuge in the library. The building, fantastic building, House of Commons, lovely interiors designed by Pugin, famous architect. And this library overlooks the River Thames. And the first two rooms are full of political books and books, biographies. But the last room is really a room where the books aren't relevant really to politics, a lot of fiction and biography that isn't political. And I, in my day, they used to have all-night sittings. So you'd be there literally all night waiting for votes. And there were big leather chairs where people fell asleep. And I shared a table, I think, with Peter Mandelson. Hmm. Remember Peter Mandelson? Oh, yeah. Still with us. So he would sit on one side of the table. I'd sit on the other side of the table, writing my diary, making sure he wasn't looking at what I was saying. And we would chat. But he would fall asleep. And I'd think, what am I going to read? And I climbed up wonderful library steps and discovered the autobiography of Arthur Conan Doyle. Hmm written in about 1926. Quite early on, I discovered him describing an evening at the Langham Hotel, which is opposite now the BBC still exists, where he'd gone for a dinner with an American publisher who'd invited him and Oscar Wilde to have dinner. And he didn't know Oscar Wilde at that stage. He was a few years older than him in his 30s. Arthur Conan Doyle was then in his late 20s. He'd only written one Sherlock Holmes story. And this was the year after the Jack the Ripper murders. And this American publisher who published Lippincott's monthly magazine, was looking for murder mysteries set in London to capitalise on the interest in Jack the Ripper and wanted to commission these two young up-and-coming writers, the Scotsman, Arthur Conan Doyle, the Irishman Oscar Wilde, to write murder mysteries for him. And as a result of that dinner at the Langham Hotel, Arthur Conan Doyle was persuaded to write the second Sherlock Holmes story. There might never have been any more Sherlock Holmes had it not been for this dinner. And Oscar Wilde was persuaded to write what eventually became The Picture of Dorian Gray. Huh. What a so, meal. Yeah, what a meal. Evening, yeah. So I discovered this in this book, written in 1926. And what I also discovered that amazed me, because think of Arthur Conan Doyle, who was very, you know, butch and stocky with a moustache and, you know, rather <laughs> like a, looked like a white hunter, fresh from, you know, the jungle. Uh, you didn't think that he would necessarily get on well with the uh, feet yes. dandy that was Oscar Wilde. But he fell for him immediately, admired him, spoke of his delicacy, his gentlemanly qualities, but also what a great conversationalist he was, saying that he was able to, he listened, he gave as well as took. And he remembered it as a golden evening. And it suddenly occurred to me, let's make these my Holmes and Watson, Oscar Wilde and Arthur Gondroll. And that led to a series of seven murder mysteries featuring Oscar Wilde. And so that was the result of being locked in a library overnight. So which other libraries then, this was obviously a seminal moment, but which other libraries for both of you over the years have been key places? For you, you first, Phoenicia. Well, I, I was in a boarding school in Sussex at a place called Southover Manor, which is happily no more. And the library was my refuge. Nobody else went in there. It was a sort of rather dim girls' boarding school that had seen better days. But the library was a place where I could actually escape the girls, escape any problems I had. I read all sorts of things in there. Frances Parkinson Keyes. Oh, yes. She was wonderful, not in print, but I remember finding this dusty volume and and reading it and enjoying it. Mm. What about you, Giles? Because you were at Foils, but surely there's a library nearby? Well, there was. My parents, as I mentioned, lived in a mansion flat in Baker Street which is near the Marylebone Road. And there was Marylebone Public Library. 
great, mighty Victorian building. And I spent hours there, hours and hours there. They had, and still have, a Sherlock Holmes Arthur Conan Doyle collection because out of my bedroom window, I could see the building that was believed to be 221B Baker Street. So my childhood obsessions were Oscar Wilde and Arthur Conan Doyle. So I really have never left my childhood. So I would go there to get into Sherlock Holmes in a big way. I was then sent to a boarding school, this place called Beedales in Hampshire, which was founded in the 1890s by a man called John Badley, Mr. Badley. And he was still alive in the 1960s, born in 1863, died in 1965, aged 102. And I knew this man because I would go and play Scrabble with him in his cottage in the grounds on a Wednesday afternoon. A, you know, a child was sent down to play Scrabble with him. And we would have tea and scones made by his housekeeper, and we would play Scrabble. He won every game. <laughs> I said he cheated, and because he was using these words that were obsolete. He said they were current when I learned them in the 1850s. <laughs> anyway, he was a delightful old gentleman. And he told me that among his first parents at the school, which he found in the 1890s, was Oscar Wilde. So Oscar Wilde's eldest son went to this school, Beedell's. So I, when I was a teenager, was a friend, a friend of Oscar Wilde. Venetia, shake my hand. <laughs> I will. You're now shaking the hand that shook the hand that wrote The Importance of Being Earnest. Well, and Oscar Wilde named one of his sons Vivian. Yes. Spelt V-Y-V-Y-A-N. Yes. Which is your son. And I named our eldest daughter, oh. well, her first name Charlotte, but her second name is Constance, after Constance Wilde, Wilde the... in homage. Constance Wilde was the wife of Oscar Wilde and the mother of Vivian. And Vivian's son, mm. Merlin Holland, who now lives in France, I'm proud to say is a friend of mine mm. and has kindly read all my Oscar Wilde novels and given them his blessing. So at this school, Beedales, mm. founded in the 1890s, was this old gentleman who was young then. And it was very much in those days a Christian socialist school, blessed by people like Bernard Shaw, who were, uh, you know, founder Fabians, a lot of vegetarianism going on, open-toed sandals, wholesome naked bathing, that kind of thing. <laughs> and when the school moved to its present site, which is near Petersfield in Hampshire, they built a library that is undoubtedly the finest school library anywhere in the world, built by a man called Lupton. I don't know what his first name is, I'm doing some research. Lupton built this library. It's wonderful, made of wood. Is it where you must Google? Anyone listening to this, you've got as far into this. If you, if you like a, a podcast that lasts three hours, you're still with us. Uh, <laughs> Google the library designed by Lupton at Beedale School. You'll never have seen it. It's on two floors. There's a, an arcade around the top floor of all, all wood. And there are alcoves in this library. And it was like you. It was, for me, it was, it was the safe haven. It's still there. It's a reason to send your children to this school. And there was a wonderful librarian who herself had been a pupil at the school many years before called Gonda. It was a funny school. We called the teachers by their first names. It was one of those places. The, um, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there you go. And as I say, all the parents seem to be famous poets. Yeah. I mean, I mean, literally, I've got a, a photograph of three parents talking to one another. And I think it was Robert Graves, Cecil D. Lewis and Lawrence Turrell. Or a little and the poem Walking Away by Cecil Day-Lewis, which is one of my favourites, is in your anthology, it which is. is about Sean Day-Lewis. It is. Another of his sons, like Daniel, yeah. is also his son. Yeah. But that's a beautiful, beautiful poem. It's a beautiful poem. It's a poem really. It's one I want to learn by heart. It's a poem about, as it were, losing your child growing up and, and, mm. and, and parting. Anyway, so the Beedells Library was, I'd say, a formative mm -hmm. library. I'm a great campaigner for libraries. 
And they don't need to be traditional libraries like the ones we've been talking about, which are very traditional. Libraries can and should change. And those that do thrive. I say this advisedly because there's a sentimental streak. Whenever a library is threatened, people emerge from the woodwork and say, don't close the library. I then say to them, when did you last visit the library? How many books have you borrowed from this library? And they, the words are still on their lips. People love, like having a library, but do they, it's like people, oh, I love a local shop. Well, then use it. The only way you're going to keep a bookshop alive is actually say, I'm not going to take the shortcut and go on Amazon. Sometimes you may need to. Sometimes you may want to. But there is no independent bookshop in this country that won't deliver for you tomorrow the book you ordered by five o'clock today, and you'll get a human being in there who understands what you are wanting. And the bookshops that are delivering are growing. There are now more bookshops, independent bookshops, in this country this year than there were last year, more last year than there were the year before. I think that is true? Yes. Indi- yes. And it's the bookshops that are providing the service that Venetia is providing yes. that thrive. The same goes for libraries. I, in the 1890s, I worked at the Department of Culture, and I remember sitting down with Danny Finkelstein, now works for the Times, Danny the Fink on the Times. In the 1990s. 19, did I say the 1890s? <laughs> the 1890s. <laughs> and yes. Well. Yes. <laughs> I think Disraeli was Prime Minister. I served in his administration. Dear old Dizzy. No, I'm afraid it was John Major, but never mind, a bit of a come down. But anyway, uh, we, we were at the Department for National Culture, whatever it is, and we were looking at library policy. And Danny was saying, well, Maybe we should get libraries to get coffee shops in. Maybe we should get Costa or Starbucks mm. to come into the libraries. Let's make them places where we can get a computer company. to. This is before computers were everywhere. Install computers. Let's make it places, family, let's put creches. Let's fund nursery schools. Let's make it a places where people go as well. And I think you mustn't get locked into the library that we knew in our childhood as the library of the future. A library is a place where you can borrow books and where you can read. That's all it has to be, and it can be done in a multitude of ways. Do you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. We have a local library at the top of our road at home. I can't go to the local supermarket without my youngest, who's 10, saying, can't we go to the library? And I have been known to leave her there while I do the shopping because she absolutely adores it. And you're absolutely right, Giles, also in terms of going in there and just using the service is one way to help ensure they survive because they do rely on those issue figures for renewal and to prove their worth to the council, rightly or wrongly, or local authorities. No, you and I, because we're sentimental, good-hearted people, think they also should be there as a warm place for people who have nowhere else to go to sit in a corner near the radiator flicking Mm. through the newspaper. That has a social function too. But for a library to be a library, people must use it for its core purpose. And Yes, and they do also provide all manner of amazing services because we've been up and down the land to different libraries Mm. and it's incredible the multi-purpose, diverse elements that they bring to the communities as well. And you will be familiar with the word serendipity. Absolutely. And you will know because you probably listen to Something Rhymes with Purple, the podcast. I'm a big fan that I do with Susie Dent, the girl from Dictionary Corner. She's brilliant. And she reminded me that Serendipity comes from Horace Walpole, one of his novels. And Serendip was the old name for Sri Lanka. And if you research something on Google, yes, you can get the answer. But if you go to the library and you go to, let's say I'm researching one of my Oscar Wilde books, and I want to know what was in the theatre in the spring of January 1895... That's not easy to find on Google. But you go to a biography from that year, you go to an old newspaper from that year, 
and serendipity will take you to other incidental things. That's what a library can yes. give you. And in the era of the dread fake news as well, to actually go in and ensure that what you're looking at is correct, the information yes, is absolutely. accurate and authentic. Because you can't trust. And also the, library, the librarian or mm. bookshop manager or owner I re- will, I mean, will help you through, navigate that as well. When I was about eight or nine, I became absolutely fixated with Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Oh, that's one word. And I went to my local library and I told the librarian, I said, do you have a biography because it had been on Blue Peter? And she said, no, but there's something in the stacks. Come back, you know, in a couple of days and I'll have found it for you. And she placed in my hands later that week a copy of Flush by Virginia Woolf. And she'd gone down into the stacks and she'd found it for me. And I never forgot that. And here we are all these years later. Well, not that long later. (laughs) Elizabeth Barrett Browning, see how far we can get together. How do I love thee? Oh, dear. Can you get any further than that? No, I can't. Let me count the ways. I love thee to the breadth and depth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. I love thee to the limit of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the love I seem to lose with my lost saints and with my childhood's grief. I love thee with all the breath, tears, smiles of all my life, and if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. Wow. Bravo. That's beautiful. And what's interesting about that, it's one of the sonnets from the Portuguese, and I assume they were translations of Portuguese sonnets, and as you would, and that's how they were published. She published them as that because they were original sonnets, but it was more acceptable for a woman to be seen as a translator than as a poet. Isn't that shocking, but fascinating? Yes, it is. And people always think, oh, these are sonnets from the Portuguese. They, they were translations. They weren't. They were inspired by mm. uh, the Portuguese, but they are our own work. And how apt you should recite that, because we're recording this on Valentine's Day. And I have to thank you and Susie and your brilliant podcast, because I may have written in my wife's Valentine's card today, be my makushla. Oh, there you are. There you go. Because uh, that you. word is beautiful. And a discovery from your excellent podcast. Excellent. He's a sentimental man. <laughs> yeah, I am. Now, tell us, we haven't asked you, because you're going to get a plug for your, what is your latest anthology? Ah, you, well. Because you've, you've done two, at least, with your father. With yes, father. yeah, we edited two poetry anthologies. So, Cloud, similar furrow to your latest opus, Poems That Make Grown Men Cry, yeah. Poems That Make Grown Women Cry. Brilliant titles. Tapping into emotion, freedom of expression, and... That was with amnesty, partly, hence the freedom of expression and gender identity, but also just celebrating beautiful poetry. And like your anthology, actually, I love an anthology where there are introductions or there's a little bit of help and you're led by the hand. You don't talk over them. You do it wonderfully in this one. You don't talk over the poems. So everyone can pull their own truths out of these gorgeous, universal works of literature. Mm. But if someone brilliant is leading you by the hand towards the poem then you can't help but read it. Mm. And that's like what we've, we discovered. Oh, th- do you know about Other Men's yes, Flowers? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a book a great by Lord Wavell, yes. who was a, a general during the Second World War, famous general, he'd fought mm. in the First World War, and he, well, remind us what the anthology was. Well, it was um, said to be all, and I believe, it was all the poems he knew of by heart. Oh. Mm. He remembered these poems, and he composed the anthology in his head. Was he in a... Prisoner of War Camp yes, or something. He and he, as it were, kept himself going by remembering mm. these poems. And then after the war produced this wonderful anthology that people did love. And people have been 
generous enough, I've, this is the ultimate compliment, to say that Dancing by the Light of the Moon echoes that. Yeah, so, well, I can believe it. Wow. And my, you're very kind to mention the other anthologies. My latest anthology, again, touches on similar areas because it's called My First Memory. And it's a collection of the oh, first memories of great figures from history, literature, etc. And watershed moments of how they became who they became. What about you, Giles? Do you have a first memory? My first memory is... What do you think your first memory is? I think my first memory is... I was born in Germany. My parents were part of the something called the Allied Control Commission after the Second World War, where British forces... The, the, Germany was divided into regions. The Russians mm. had a bit, the French, the Americans, and the British. And my father was a, a lawyer. He was a magistrate in one of the British areas. But I don't remember being in Germany. I know I was in Germany because I had a governess of Nanny who was a man who had been a circus clown. Wow. Yeah. But there wasn't much work for circus clowns in <laughs> Germany, I can tell you, immediately after the Second World War. And he applied, my parents advertised for a, a nanny, for their little boy. A manny. A, 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 yeah, is that yeah, what they're now nanny. called? But they weren't called, they were called nannies in those days. And this bloke turned up. And my mother interviewed him and thought he seems decent, and I think felt sorry for this fellow who couldn't get any work. And so my first nanny, I was brought up by a German circus clown. My wife says, this explains everything. <laughs> it does explain how I could walk the tightrope as a child, which was useful when I was an MP, and I can still, to this day, stand on my head. Oh, wow. But I don't, I don't remember any of that. I do remember... In, it must have been the early 1950s when I was three or four, when they came back to England. My father was then a barrister and being by the River Thames, King's Bench Walk, and he was either moving into or out of the building there. Mm. I remember the building and cases and being you were around three. Up. I was around Because the average three. is 3.2 or three and a quarter. Yeah. And that's normal. People think that's because, one, the hippocampus, which you write about, yeah. and those parts of the brain that function for memory are developed sufficiently for longer autobiographical memories to implant, but also because we start to speak and we can start fashioning narrative. And words, obviously, as you said, books have been your life, but words have been your life as my, well. My problem, too, is how many of my memories are false memories. Yes. Because I tell stories. And fortunately, I keep a diary so I can check against the diary. But two things have happened recently. One, I, I went to the French Lycée. And I was a pupil at the French Lycée when President de Gaulle of France came on a state visit. And I described this. They interviewed me for a documentary. You know, they found children who were there at the time. And I described him coming to the school and in his uniform. This is a great man, the leader of the Free French from the Second World War, later the President of France, a formidable figure, tall with a great bidon stomach and a huge nose, and his uniform, his képi. I described all this. And then they showed me the footage. And there he was in a lounge suit. <laughs> and I described the uniform vividly, yeah. how I'd been overwhelmed by the uniform, shaking his hand. So, you know. Yes, well, it became true, at least, it, in, yeah, your, that, in your mind. That, that mm. is. Yes. That's what he should have been dressed. He should have been, he should have been dressed yeah. like that. You mentioned serendipity. I'd love it if you would browse the shelves and choose something oh. with Venetia. Good. Well, One last question, though. You mentioned you had... I don't need to, because I seem to already have in my hand my first memory. <laughs> uh, 
Icons, Thinkers and Heroes on their earliest recollections, edited by Ben Kill. But I'm told, I would ask him to sign it, but I'm told I sign a lot of books. Thank you. That, in fact, they become more valuable if they're not signed with a dedication just the name. Have you heard this? Oh, but that, that that's a little mercenary. No, I think that's. I'm awful. not sure that one's going to. Speaking of my favourite bookshops, do you know Shakespeare and Company? The oh, we've recorded Paris? an episode of this podcast there. Well, Shakespeare and Co. is a mm. in, in, on the left. With MTS Darker, the great poet MTS Darker chose Shakespeare and Company. It was quite. A... You've met a mod. You're slumming with us this week, aren't you? <laughs> not, not a bit. Anyway, I went to Shakespeare and Co. with my wife a couple of years ago. And we spent a lot of time in Paris. We've got a little pomme de terre in Paris. It's not big enough to call it a pied de terre. And we love going to Shakespeare and Company. And my wife knows that I'm never really happy in a bookshop unless I'm sure they've got one of my books. So what she does is she quickly scouts around mm. the bookshop and says, don't worry, Giles, they've got all the books. It's fine. You can relax <laughs> and enjoy your visit. Otherwise, she sees me hovering near where my books might be, <laughs> trying to eye the shelves. And she found this book by me. It's Shakespeare and Co. is a second-hand bookshop. So I pulled down this book from the shelf, quite excited, and there it was, and I opened it. And I read the words, Dear John, with love on your birthday, from your old friend Giles, and it was dated four days previously. (laughs) I had given it to someone we went for dinner with on the Monday, and by Thursday night it was already for sale at the second-hand bookshop. They're a fast reader and they don't have the shelf I have dropped them. I, 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 I bought the book back. I put with renewed admiration and sent it back to him. I've not heard from him since and don't wish to. But a lot of precious things I've given away because of my wife. Did I mention that when we began this podcast two days ago? I, <laughs> I may have mentioned that my wife has got the skips ordered and everything's going to yes, be. Yeah, yeah. So precious things I'm giving away, and I've given away all my teddy bears to Newby Hall in Yorkshire. It's a beautiful stately home built by Christopher Wren. And so all the teddy bears there live in the Brandreth Bear House. So some of the precious yeah, things, like I was lucky enough to know A. A. Milne's son, Christopher Robin Milne, who was a bookseller, yes. of course, and wrote a couple of lovely books himself. And he, for example, my Winnie the Pooh, was blessed by Christopher Robin. By Christopher Robin. My Winnie the Pooh held the paw of Christopher Robin. And so things like that are too precious to have at home and I don't want them end up on the skip. So precious things have all gone to Newby Hall in Yorkshire so other people can enjoy them. Newby Hall, yeah. yeah. And all those people. It's nice to share things. Absolutely. Well, on that... No, please let's browse the shelves and maybe let's we can share it. a choice. Well, let's share it. I want to be led share by Share a recommendation, what do you think I would like? Phoenicia. Thank you both so much. Are we much. coming together? Will you move the microphone with us? Yes. No, You're going to have to do this over several episodes. We burbled on. This <laughs> We're browsing. And normally when I come in here with Phoenicia... She knows me. She just says, who's interested in a book? She shows me my own books because she knows that's all <laughs> really interesting. I love that. Sisters what? of Sinai by Janet Soskis. It's about two redoubtable Scots women whose father was equally enlightened. And once they learned a language, he allowed them to travel. This was in the Victorian age. Allowed them to travel to the country. And they actually ended up in Egypt. And they discovered a palimpsest. Oh. with one of the Gospels on one side, which they were so excited by that they took back to Britain on Mount Sinai. So I do recommend that. Okay. Anything else? 
Do you yes, know, Venetia, when a local author's been in because their books have suddenly moved more prominently to... Uh, we only have a couple of authors who do that. <laughs> no names, no patrol. I think you might enjoy that. Oh, Andrea like, oh, de Robillon, which oh, is about... Of course, Ernest Hemingway. Exactly. In his last and muse. And his last muse. Oh, that's that my, my street. Great, I think that's yeah. more up your street. That is, you. to be honest. I'm liking both of them. But I'm, li I'm liking the idea of that. So I think maybe Autumn and Venice is what I'm going to have. Good. What a fun and fantastic duo Giles and Venetia make. I could barely keep up with Giles, so I hope you could. And if you're wondering, Makushla is an Irish word meaning heartbeat and my new favourite term of endearment. So if we endeared ourselves to you with this episode, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you tune in. That way, you'll help us champion libraries and celebrate stores like Barnes Bookshop. To see inside Venetia's shop, put faces to names and explore the podcast's other guests and venues, please visit our website, exlibrispodcast.com. You can also get updates as well as win signed copies of both Giles's superb anthology Dancing by the Light of the Moon and my own recent collection, My First Memory, on social media. Find me at that Ben Holden on Twitter and Instagram. Ex Libris is produced by Chris Sharp and myself. Its music is composed and performed by Adam Pleath. Ex Libris is brought to you in association with the Light Bulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning, providing opportunities to shine.